Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to our next installment of Space 3D. Uh, I'm Eleanor Rangers, and I'm joined today with uh, my co-host, Emily Carney. Say hi, Emily. Hey, it's me, Emily. How y'all doing? And we have the um, distinct pleasure of being able to speak with Dr. James Logan today, who I've known for many years. And uh, I'd like to do a brief introduction on Jim's credentials before we start discussing um, his involvement and knowledge regarding Space Station Freedom. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Jim. Jim Logan has held numerous positions in his 20-year career at NASA, including Chief of Flight Medicine and Chief of Medical Operations at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. He served also as a mission control surgeon, deputy crew surgeon, or crew surgeon for 25 space shuttle missions, and project manager for the Space Station Medical Facility. That was Space Station Freedom's medical facility. Developing the initial design for a telemedicine-based in-flight medical delivery system for long-duration missions. After a year at NASA headquarters, he left the space agency to serve as provost for the International Space University in Strasbourg, France. Upon returning to the United States, he consulted with the RAND Corporation. He's also a founding board member of the American Telemedicine Association, and he's served as a telemedicine consultant to a variety of professional organizations, international and domestic hospital-based healthcare systems, and the Department of Defense. Dr. Logan returned to NASA's Johnson Space Center in 1999 and served as Chief of Medical Informatics and Healthcare Systems and Chief of the Dive Medicine Board and Medical Director of NASA's Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory, as well as a Senior Space Medical Officer on the Clinical Services Branch of the Space Medicine Division. He completed a medical fellowship also in undersea and hyperbaric medicine at Duke University Medical Center in 2013. So no, no moss grows under Jim's, uh, Jim's feet, that's for sure. Um, he's also board certified in aerospace medicine. He's a recipient of NASA's Distinguished Speakers Award, and his lecturing activities have taken him to Australia, France, Germany, the UK, Japan, Canada, Iceland, Russia, Argentina, Costa Rica, Guam, South Korea, New Zealand, and the People's Republic of China. Obviously, he's an expert in space medicine and biomedical issues for long-duration spaceflight based on the extensive credentials I've just described. And um, in addition, um, Jim has been featured um, on PBS, Canada AM, the History Channel, the National Geographic Channel, and numerous radio talk shows. So we are very honored to be able to uh, snag Jim between uh, his other obligations. Let's get into some questions for Jim. Uh, what lessons coming out of Skylab formed the basis of what was desired for the health maintenance facility on Space Station Freedom? Well, first of all, that's an excellent question. Uh, first of all, let me tell you how pleased I am to be talking with both of you today. Um, Skylab was very important because up to that point in time, the goal was to survive the operational mission. So there were some medical studies that were done in Gemini and Apollo, but they were pretty simple. And you have to remember the longest Apollo mission was just a little over two weeks. Skylab was really the first attempt to look at and to document and to research 
how the human body adapted to increasing durations uh, in space. So from a fundamental standpoint, what we learned about Skylab really informed everything else that we did for medical planning for the shuttle uh, and the space station and also, quite frankly, the human interplanetary spaceflight. Some of the uh, lessons that we learned in Skylab was that the different bodily systems adapted to the zero-G condition at different rates. And some systems would actually decondition for several days or maybe up to a few weeks and then achieve a new set point. And so throughout the rest of the mission, they were more or less stable but at a different set point. Uh, An example of that... um, that I'll use is plasma volume. When you're exposed to weightlessness, the first thing that happens is there's a huge fluid shift from the lower body to the central blood volume, and you can't really float by the zero-G toilet without having to use it. And so, therefore, in the first 24 or 48 hours, um, because the body thinks that you're volume overloaded, uh, you undergo a pretty intense diuresis. And after that diuresis is complete, and that usually happens within the first 48, 72 hours, you end up being about 10 to 12% volume depleted. And you stay that way throughout the duration of of the flight. One of the interesting philosophical uh, perspectives that we had after Skylab was how do you really look at what's happening with the human body? There was a school of thought that, was, that came from the academics that basically looked at it as an adaptation issue. The human body was adapting to this new environment of weightlessness. But then there was another operational group that looked at it uh, from 180 degrees. They, they saw the whole issue as a problem with deconditioning. So, for instance, you had a crew member that was 10% volume depleted. They were deconditioned from a cardiac standpoint, and that was all well and good for zero-G. But during the entry phase of the flight returning to Earth, that put them at a distinct operational disadvantage and even put the crew members at some risk. So the idea after Skylab, during and after Skylab, this, this picture emerged that, Yes, even though we wanted to study what was happening with adaptation, there was also an operational issue of trying to come up with countermeasures to to basically contradict these adaptations. So what you were trying to do was to retard deconditioning or, in essence, eliminate it altogether. It was very fortunate that NASA was able to do that, to have those three missions in the in the 70s to really set the stage for our basic understanding of, of human physiology in space. What would you say, I'm just curious, over time, what incremental knowledge have we gained? Or is, or we really still, Skylab really is still very important in our basic understanding of physiology? Well, I think Skylab will always be important to our basic understanding of physiology because it was the first uh, exposures, increasing exposures that, that we had in the, in the space program. So, uh, like I said before, it really informed everything that we did uh, thereafter, including training. Uh, for instance, in Skylab, uh, even though they had an Apollo capsule parked at the end of the, of the, of the lab, um, we had to train at least two of the three crew members uh, in order to be crew medical officers. 
So they got pretty extensive training. Now, on the missions where we already had a physician, uh, astronaut Joe Kerwin was a physician astronaut. Then we, of course, used him. But we also trained a backup on the on the same flight because the operational issue was, well, what if the crew medical officer is the one that gets sick? You know, who, who takes care of him or her? And that philosophy we extended all the way into shuttle and then all the way into uh, ISS. So there are always two members of the crew that are trained as crew medical officers. Well, let, why don't we go ahead and turn to specifically to Space Station Freedom for uh, for the next series of questions. Transitioning from Skylab, what was the original planning around astronaut mission duration, activities that were going to be planned in Space Station Freedom? I'm curious as to whether they were similar to how the ISS functions now, the International Space Station. Also wanted to verify what the projected crew size was because some of the limited reading that I've done was that uh, I understand that it would increase in size as the program matured over what was a 20-year life cycle at the time that was being looked at for, for Space Station Freedom. So I don't know if you have any comments regarding that. Yeah, for Space Station Freedom, the initial crew size was three. And as the station expanded, that was envisioned to move from three to six, and then from there maybe to nine at the end of the at the, at the end of the uh, program, and the mission durations were pretty much always set for about six months. Um, was there any at the time any reason why six months was chosen? Was there any projection that there they would be any any longer than that? Well, it was felt like six months was an was a a nice round number, so to speak, and it was an incremental duration from the twenty eight you know, 56, 84 days duration of the of the three-man Skylab missions. Okay. And, and also it was thought that if we ever did a lunar base, that probably we'd be rotating crews every six months or so. And there was some feeling that a trip to Mars would end up taking about six months. Curious if you have any comments about hygiene on space station freedom, how that was handled. We know that Skylab had the infamous shower hmm. that – was not exactly very popular in space station today. Really, the wipes and so forth to, to kind of keep clean. I, I understand that there may have been some preliminary testing done um, maybe at the University of Houston with the School of Nursing on uh, some type of shower that was going to be in space station freedom. So I'm just curious if you have, have any comments on how hygiene was going to be handled. Was it more going to be like the Skylab model, if you will, or was it already progressing to um, the, the wipe model? <laughs> I think there was some real frustration about the shower on, on Skylab. Uh, it was a little finicky, and it really wasn't all that efficient in terms of time, in terms of time management. Uh, so in Space Station Freedom, from my recollection, they were already thinking of pretty much going back to the more or less a sponge bath. You know, hygiene was a high priority because you, you were asking these crew members to exercise maybe up to two hours per day. And so, you know, you, they, they needed to stay uh, refreshed and, and clean. Um, and when they actually went through the simulation, kind of the, the you know, the blackboard simulation of what all that would involve with a crew of three to six, I think that convinced them that that the sponge bath philosophy was probably the most efficient one. 
Now, turning to the actual health maintenance facility itself, can you talk to what the overall goals were for this? And I'd like to understand, my understanding is there were a couple different components that were envisioned for this overall health maintenance facility. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through what those different components were and what the um, how they were being planned in terms of stocking materials and how many uh, astronauts potentially could be ca- be cared for depending on where they were in this health maintenance facility. Yeah, center. that's an excellent question. So let's kind of get into the philosophy behind the Space Station Freedom Health Maintenance Facility. The, the essential goal of the health maintenance facility, quite frankly, was to prevent an early mission termination due to a medical reason. And there were several reasons for that, one of which is you did not want to lose a crew member. That's That was obvious. That was the prime goal. But the second goal was we knew pretty early in in the kind of the design of the whole space station concept, we knew that if we evacuated one person, we were going to have to evacuate all of them. So if you were going to do a medevac, you were going to bring the whole crew back. And it was going to be very expensive, and it was going to be extremely risky. So the idea was to stratify all the anticipated medical conditions that you could imagine into basically three categories. And category one was kind of the nickel and dime uh, category. That would be like space motion sickness. You know, these were syndromes that certainly made the crew uncomfortable and certainly made them less efficient for a few days, but it really didn't put them at any great risk. You know, we knew that the treatment for that was symptomatic treatment and time would cure that. And then on the other end, there were Category 3 conditions that really, quite frankly, weren't survivable in a in a zero-G state. And then there was a middle category that okay. were that was the categories that if you had minimal diagnostic and some some basic therapeutic um, equipment. And by therapeutic, I mean if you had a decent pharmacy, if you had an intravenous system, um, you could treat those conditions or at least treat them for long enough that it would take to affect some kind of medevac. And so we devoted about 90% of the capability of the HMF to the care and feeding of those Category 2 conditions because that's where you could get the most bang from the buck and that's where you could prevent an unnecessary mission termination. And in terms of how long you could sustain or projected sustaining someone up there, um, if there was, you know, this a more urgent or critical care situation versus non-critical. Um, I'm just curious about the numbers you, that they were projecting that they could treat at any one time. Yeah, you could only treat one crew member at any given time, uh, especially with a Category 2 condition. So that was the constraint that, that we had. It, but it was interesting from a kind of a mission architecture point of view. You, you have to remember that Initially, the idea was to have some kind of crew rescue vehicle at, at the at the end of the, you know, one end of the space station that if you needed to medevac, then you could get into the crew rescue vehicle and within a period of 6 to 24 hours, you could be back down on Earth. 
And so the initial thinking for the health maintenance facility was to look at that scenario. It, it became real clear to me uh, personally as we continued to work on this that really what was going on was was either an intended or an unintended bait and switch. And so let me kind of go into a little bit of detail with that. It, it, it became increasingly obvious to me that we weren't going to have a, a dedicated vehicle for a crew rescue that was going to be sitting on the end of the station and that the crew rescue vehicle, in essence, was going to be the space shuttle. And unfortunately, it was a space shuttle that wasn't continually docked at the space station. If you happen to have a medical contingency during the maybe the 10-day, 7- to 10-day interval that the, station was, uh, that the shuttle was docked at the station, you lucked out. But otherwise, to call the ambulance, you were going to have to do an emergency space shuttle mission. So those of you, and, and I know the two of you are, are knowledgeable with this, but for those people in your audience, there's kind of the golden hour philosophy in terrestrial medicine. And that is if you can take somebody that's, that's really sick and get him, into a, him or her into a critical care facility within the space of an hour or so, you've you got a pretty good chance of saving somebody. But as I used to try to explain to the engineers, you, you couldn't really look at the space shuttle as an ambulance. It wasn't designed as an ambulance, and it didn't function like an ambulance. And when they had trouble understanding that concept, I remember briefings at headquarters where I would say to the engineers, any of you ever had to call 911? And several hands would go up. And I would say, okay, well, next time you have to call 911, wait 24 hours. And, of course, in the shuttle, to even consider an emergency shuttle mission that could be put together within 24 hours, that was pure fantasy. So you were really thinking about a week to maybe a couple of months before you could affect a very risky space shuttle rescue mission. Okay, so now that I've explained some of the background, let me go back to your excellent question, which was how many days duration could you treat a Category 2 condition? And unfortunately, when we started doing simulations, it was obvious to us that we can only support somebody for about 48 or 72 hours max. So you had a real, um, you had a real problem trying to, to kind of square that circle. We had a lot of debate, or I had a lot of personal debates with the, with the engineer managers about conceptually what an ambulance is. And so in, in, the, in the ISS, when they started thinking about putting a capsule at the end, um, I had to point out to them that's all well and good to have a capsule at the end because in the engineer's mind, that, that solved the problem of having to, to do care and feeding of a Category 2 medical condition. Until I pointed out to them that when you went around and looked at the best emergency medical facilities in the country, one of the things that they didn't do in an emergency room was take somebody who was pretty ill and put them in a centrifuge and spin them up to 6 Gs. 
I, I had to do a lot of tr- basic training to the engineers to educate them as to what the term medevac meant. And the term medevac in medicine means you transport a patient from a place of minimal medical capability and expertise to a place of greater medical capability and expertise. All right? So taking somebody from a space station and putting them in a capsule and having them splash down off the West Coast hours from a medical facility doesn't meet the medical definition of medevac. And so there were a lot of there were a lot of really intense philosophical debates that were going on. I was on one side trying to represent medicine and the engineers and the managers were on another side. Looking back at that, um, you know, if we, we look at what's transpired in terms of how crew have done on the International Space Station, are you surprised that we haven't had any major category two or that to my knowledge, major category two or, or worse uh, medical events and the, the amount of time that we've been yeah, up there? The answer to your question is yes. And nobody is, you asked me if I was surprised and the answer is yes. And, and nobody is more surprised than I am because when we were looking at what the risk might be, uh, we looked at a lot of data. And one of the data sets that we really looked at was the Navy nuclear submarine data. Uh, Believe it or not, this is kind of a sobering statistic, but the average age on on a nuclear submarine is about 20 or 21, and in some cases even less than that. I mean, you know, the the boomers, the submarines that carry the nuclear weapons, uh, they have more firepower on board those subs than, than was let loose in all of World War II. And the average age of that crew is about 20, all right? When we looked at the Navy medevac data for a young, healthy crew and extrapolated that to the space station environment, we ascertained that in the space of about 20 years, you would have anywhere from one to three major medical events. And so far, you know, cross your fingers, and and I'm glad to, to report this, we have not had a medical condition that has forced an early mission termination. Now, I think there probably have been some close calls um, that I may not be aware of, at least in the last four or five years, but we haven't had anything that has really broken a kind of a clinical threshold. Yeah, and, I, and I'm only speaking to the U.S. program, not like Shuttle, not like Shuttle Mir, where there were some uh, – and the mirror program where I yes, know there was. But, but, you know, just like buying stocks, you know, past performance does not guarantee future performance. And a medical event is a low incidence but high risk proposition. And so you you, you still have to have the medical capability, both diagnostic and therapeutic. Because if you don't have the therapeutic capabilities, there really isn't much justification for having any significant diagnostic capabilities. If you think somebody is sick and you think you're going to get sicker, you you do a rescue. 
On behalf of Space 3D, I hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with Jim Logan on Space Station Freedom. In part two of Jim's interview, we'll delve into a deeper understanding of the specifics of the preventive, diagnostic, and therapeutic capabilities which had been planned for Space Station Freedom. Join me, Eleanor Rangers, my co-host, Emily Carney, and Jim Logan on our next podcast.